I want to talk about happiness and holiness. This is a theme that I wish we understood really, 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 really well. I wish we understood this really, really well. Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, every human person tends to seek this goal, happiness. This is the cause of some going to war and the cause of others avoiding it. It's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step except toward this object. This, the seeking happiness, is the motive of every action of every person, even of those who hang themselves. All men seek, meaning all people, seek happiness. Now, why do we do such different things? Because we believe different things. Psalm 16, 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So if I were to ask you... How does the gospel work to create holiness? That would be an interesting assignment. If I were to ask you, how does temptation work? What is it that gives temptation power? I heard desire. What do you mean by desire? Did you have any? You said desire as well. Did you have something to... And, and then you said choice. Yeah. And what did you mean by choice? So what you're saying is what I choose to align with is what then empowers. Yeah. So it could start as a spark, but your choice turns it into a flame. Yeah. And you're saying the desire might not be for the a purely evil thing, but something about the way it's being pursued or the timing makes it evil. What if I said that all temptation is a preaching of a gospel? Explain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For real. Not the gospel itself? Not the gospel. Uh, a gospel. A gospel. If you'll believe this, you'll live. You'll experience real life. Real life's over here. Come get some. Happiness is over here. And if you believe that, if if you don't believe that, will that even appeal to you? No. If you recognize the temptation is a false gospel, a false promise, it will lose its grip. So isn't that where discernment comes in? Sure. So psychologically, if you hear what I'm trying to say here, we, we often think of temptation as about an offer of pleasure. Am I right? 
But I don't know if we think of God's invitation in the gospel as an offer of pleasure. In fact, I think we don't think of it that way. Because we're wrong. This is where the real pleasure is. The gospel is offering me to enjoy the fullness that the creator really has for me in his original intentions for me as, as like he created my life to be blessed. He created me. He, the happiest being who ever lived, understands how life works best. And his ways are good. Can you understand why a Jewish person would say that God's laws are like honey on your lips? Taking in God's laws makes a person happy and healthy. Psalm 119 is this love poetry written to God's law. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus loves God's law and never once violated or broke it, and nor did he come to abolish it. He came to bring us, to make us the kind of people who actually live what the law can only say, hey, this is what it ought to do, but it doesn't actually help us do it. And Jesus came so that we could live in the blessedness of God's will on planet Earth. Temptation is offering future pleasure. It's a promise of future pleasure. If you believe and partner with me, you'll have pleasure. You'll really live. The gospel is offering a promise of future pleasure. If you believe me, you partner with me and you walk in this, you'll really live. Blaise Pascal says the motive of every person in anything they're doing is ultimately they are seeking their own happiness, even in their self-denial and sacrifices. Even if it is that they're taking the long view and saying, I'm going to sacrifice and slave so my kids can go to college. What are they really saying? It would make me happier for my kids to go to college than for me to have all these things I could be doing with my money. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Some people could say, well, then you're saying everyone's just pure, pure selfish. I didn't say that. I didn't say seeking your own happiness is selfish. I said it's unavoidably necessary and the only motive of a human in everything we do, whether we're being selfish or selfless. So if we truly believe what Psalm 1611 says, that in God's presence, in God's presence is fullness of joy. In God's presence is fullness of joy. Where's fullness of joy? Where, where else is it? Is there fullness of joy anywhere else? Is there fullness of joy anywhere else? It, it doesn't exist. And yet, many of us think that when it comes to God, we have to choose between our happiness and our holiness. Many of us, I'm not saying all of us, The mature among us realize holiness is happiness. But many of us think, if you want to be happy, go go be in the world. If you want to be holy, go be in the church. And the truth is, sin and misery are as inseparable, inseparable as our holiness and happiness. Sin and misery run together as surely as happiness and holiness do. 
If you find somebody who you think is holy but isn't happy, I doubt it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Because holiness isn't rule-keeping. It's intimacy with Jesus, where you're overflowing with the divine nature. And Jesus, Hebrews says, is anointed with the oil of gladness more than any other human who ever lived. So if you're close to Him, okay? So the root of sin is faith in the promise of the pleasures of sin. Say it again. The root of sin is faith in the promise, the false gospel preaching that that temptation is making. It's offering you something. The temptation is speaking in your ear saying, did God really say he knows the good stuff's over here? The good stuff's over here. You'll feel so much better. The stress will go away. You'll be able to sleep at night. Short-term thinking, half-truths. And what gives that temptation power is whether you what? Believe it. You're more likely to believe something that you give space in your heart, aren't you? Which is why flee temptation. Not entertain it, not argue with it, not reason with it, not sit down and write a book about how you feel about it. That's, that's been something I'm learning not to do. One day I was trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Have you ever done that? Tried to figure out what's wrong with you? It's very discouraging. Instead of trying to figure out what's right with Jesus, try to figure out what's wrong with you. It's, it's a recipe for a bad day. One of Tom, that's one of Thomas Hopko's little rules. That do, it says, He says, don't even give attention to what the devil's up to. Don't do it. Don't dwell on darkness, sin, and temptation, and what the devil's doing. Don't dwell on that. Dwell on light and goodness and love and God. Put your thoughts on this. So one day I'm like trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And the Lord says to me, why are you trying to dignify the flesh? I said, I'm not trying to dignify the flesh. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with me so I can stop yielding to the flesh. He goes, you're looking for complicated, psychologically respectable reasons for why the flesh does what it does. And I'm like, I am? He's like, yeah. You're looking in your past and your parents and you're dignifying it with psychological. Like you'd pay hundreds of dollars to have a counselor tell you that you should be stuck. Here's the proof. I have a degree on my wall, and here's nine things that your daddy did to you. And and all that just becomes your your resume for stuckness and your identity. And God says to me, the flesh wants what it wants. It wants pleasure. It wants comfort. And it wants them right now. It's simple. Stop trying to dignify it and instead just put it to death. Okay, so the root of sin is faith in the promise of the pleasures of sin. The root of Christian virtue, the root of Christian virtue, is not self-denial, by the way. The root of Christian virtue is faith in the promise of the pleasures of God. Can you say it with me, the pleasures of God? The pleasures of God. It's really the battle between what I believe is going to bring me happiness, the pleasures of sin or the pleasures of God. The Westminster Catechism says, well, ask the question, what is the chief end of man? You know what that question means? What's the chief end of man? Let's plain English. What's the purpose of humans? What are we here to do? And they answer it this way. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, it's really interesting. They could have stopped with glorify God. 
right? They could have said, we exist to do God's will and, and bring him praise. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to glorify anything? That's a real question I'm actually asking. To praise a thing? To lift it up? All right, so if I, if I eat something that's amazing, and I come in here and I tell you guys how amazing it was, do you know what I'm doing? You're I'm telling you about its qualities that made me love it. And by doing so, I'm making it more likely that the qualities I love about it will be shared by you. And you might be like, I want some of that. I'm glorifying that hamburger. Medium rare. Garden tomato. Fresh cut onion. (laughs) When I come in here and I tell you about how patient my wife is with our kids and how attractive she is to me and how pleasing to the eye and to my heart as and a close, such a close companion and friend that our romance is firing on all cylinders. And in terms of all the other women in the world, you can keep them. I want this one. Right. I'm glorifying her. I'm expressing her virtues, her value, her preciousness, her beauty, what I value about her to you using my words. And when I glorify God, I, he is infinitely worthy, right? So, so I'm not bringing him worth. I'm not increasing his worth. But I'm helping other people see what I've begun to experience and see. That's what it means to glorify, is to allow the glorious qualities of a thing to be known, to make them famous. That's, that's actually what to glorify is to make famous. For what? For the, how valuable. That's very strange language. We don't use that language. You know, we, we talk it up. You know, he was, talking, he was talking that car up to me. He was talking up his new truck to me. What's he doing? He's praising it. We think worship, we immediately think music. Music's a good tool, but you can glorify and praise and worship God without music, but you can't do it without taking delight in him. You can obey him with your externals, but if heart's not involved, if you're not actually enjoying God, see, this is the insight of the Westminster Catechism's first line. The chief, the primary thing we're here to do is bear his image, but not just bear his image in a reflecting kind of a, we're copies of him. No, no, no. We're meant to be image bearers who are filled with his substance. And so who he is becomes revealed and his value becomes spread and his fame, that is the the value he really has, is really understood and treasured and relished and enjoyed by more and more and more people till the whole earth knows that he's the most beautiful, most incredible being that ever existed and is then, by that knowledge, brought into the experience. So the, the Westminster Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him. And that, that, you know, if you know the Puritans, you think, they didn't enjoy anything. They were just godly, whatever that means. David is the one who set up the musicians, right? Before David, they didn't have musicians in the temple. 
David invented that. And God allowed it. <laughs> I love that. He was the innovator who brought music into the house of God. And what, did, what was the thing they say, They prayed over and over and over? The Lord is, his mercy endures, his loving kindness endures forever. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. They would say that over and over and over, because that's the most true thing they knew to say. The Lord is good. His loving kindness, his covenantal love endures forever. This is what we've known. This is who we've experienced. He's good. Here's my argument. You only glorify God to the extent to which you enjoy God. Period. The end. If you decrease your enjoyment of God, you decrease how much glory you bring God. Here's my point. All of us are seeking happiness. The real stuff's found in God. And when we hear the invitation, come, belong to me, come, follow me, come, know me, come, serve me, deny yourself, take up your cross and obey me instead. He's not saying, stop seeking your happiness and do my thing instead. He's saying, seek happiness where it's actually found, where it's only found. Stop wasting your life seeking happiness in the trenches, in the dirt, in the mud, and come get some. Come fully alive. Stop playing with your search for happiness and take it seriously. Seriously enough to give your life for it. Seriously enough to give your blood for it. So you can really have it and enjoy it and come fully alive in me and become the happiest people on planet Earth. The people of God ought to be the happiest people on planet Earth. I saw a book on my mom's shelf titled, Your God is Too Small. Maybe I would write one that says, Your God's boring and ugly. You know how I know? You're boring and ugly. And we become like what we worship. I'm not talking to y'all. Y'all aren't boring and ugly. I'm saying, Christians... Who, who all they have to give people is a, is a list of rules of stuff they can't do and judgment for not doing what they already should know to do. We probably all have people in our mind that we're like, that person's unblessable. The Beatitudes are designed to blow that concept up. Which is funny because the new Pharisees, we take the blesseds, God bless us, We turn them into a list of things for us to perform in order to be blessed. When I'm pretty sure the whole point of the gospel is that Jesus is what's necessary for me to be blessed. And that nothing of my disqualifying characteristics can stop the blessing of God from coming on me if I lay my hand to his cloak and say, touch me, master, save me, help me. Are you guys understand what I'm talking about? Okay. The God that I know is kind. He's the kindest person I've ever known. He's the, and this is a buzzword for our generation, so please don't take it the wrong way. He's the safest person I've ever known. That doesn't mean he doesn't tell, he only tells me what I want to hear. That is far from the truth. But what I mean is, he has only ever done what is good for me. You know, remember the story of of Ignatius who voluntarily went to go be martyred when the, when the Roman soldiers came to get him. And they were like, you could flee. 
70 years I've been serving my Jesus, and he's never done me any harm. He's the kindest person I've ever known. He's the strongest person I've ever known. And I don't just mean muscle strong. I mean, he just doesn't give up. He can endure all things. He can bear all things. He's the happiest person I've ever known, the most patient, the most resilient. It's so funny. If you poll people and ask them who who the holiest person who ever lived is, they'll probably say Jesus. But if you ask them who the smartest person is who ever lived, they'll probably say Einstein or Bill Gates. No, that's like the richest or used to be. Yeah, yeah. Solomon, most wise. It's so funny. We don't say Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. No wonder we don't think of discipleship as the primary purpose of the gospel. We think of Jesus as a kind of dumb, saintly person who died so we could escape the wrath of God and get to heaven later. But if he's the genius the Bible presents him as, who understands how life works best, and his teaching is the most insightful, most wise, most practical teaching that's ever come to human civilization. You know you got philosophers right now that don't even believe in Jesus, who still say that Jesus' sayings in life have shaped Western civilization for 2,000 years, that he is the most influential human person. They don't even believe he's God. And they have to acknowledge that he, through his sayings and actions, is the most influential person who ever lived. It'd be nice if we believed that too. He's the smartest person I've ever known. The most insightful, the most reliable, the one who knows. He's the expert on all my problems. He knows. He understands what no one else understands. He's an eternal optimist. In fact, he thinks my pessimism is less realistic than his optimism. He thinks my faith is more realistic than my fear. He told me that years ago, and I've never forgotten it because it seemed so backwards to me. Because I thought I was trying to be realistic. And he rebuked me for it. If we really come to know him clearly, see him clearly, see him as he is, we're going to want to live as close to him as possible because we know that in his what? In his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That next to him is life, and apart from him I have no good thing. Notice I'm quoting Bible right there. As for me, it's good to be near God, says David. Okay, sin creates its own punishments without God ever needing to lift a finger. I'm not saying God doesn't lift a finger. I'm not saying God doesn't judge. I'm not saying God doesn't punish. I'm saying God wouldn't need to. Sin creates its own miseries and its own punishments. The punishment of disobeying God is the troubled life it creates. And if you cut off the limb you're sitting on, the only thing that you need to punish you is gravity, not God. Romans 1 says that God's anger against sin is revealed in him actually removing his merciful, protective hands that are normally on all humans, even unsaved humans. But as we say, no, we don't want you in our life. No, we're doing it our way. No, we don't want to know you. And he goes, okay. And so his wrath in that situation is literally giving us what we chose. Well, that's a strange form of wrath, isn't it? And he still has his hands over you, keeping you alive. And, yeah, and his, and his goal is that you burn out on sin before it kills you. Yeah. So true. 
I'm, again, I'm not saying God doesn't punish, but I'm saying sin is so painfully destructive because you know how like a bottle cap has threads or a bolt has threads. And when you're trying to put a bottle cap on and it's not threaded correctly, or you're trying to put a bolt on a nut and it's not threaded correctly and you force it, you're going to do some damage. Life has threads called how God intended it to work. And, and what he says in the scripture is for our sake. Wherever there's a no, it's not a because I don't want you happy. It's because I want you happy. His commands are for our sake. But people look at Jesus and they hear his call to radical obedience, radical surrender, and they go, so I got to choose between happiness in this world or just blech in this world and happiness in some next world. And he goes, actually, you'll get all the next world, but you're also going to get all the stuff you gave up in this world replaced even in this world. You remember? He said that. You'll get families and friends and lands and all this and eternal life. We sang it on Sunday. Surely I will see the goodness of the Lord where? In, in the land I'm living in, right? Oh, yeah. So God didn't create us to be miserable. And God's call for us to know him and walk with him is not a call for us to be miserable. It's actually a call for us to be fully alive. Fully alive. So he didn't create us to be miserable. He created us for happiness and holiness because those two, this is the whole point of the talk. Those two flow together. Glorify and enjoy God. Flow together. How can you possibly glorify God if he's no fun to walk with and he's, and he's a burden and your life's miserable and all it is is paying a high price with no payoff? Your demeanor, my demeanor would be despondent and all that would reveal to the world is that God is massively just a, a buzzkill. My boy Billy Joel sang it, didn't he? He'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Bro, we do cry sometimes as saints. But there's more joy in the presence of the Lord, even with all the suffering and the cost and the difficulties we endure as God's kids, than there is in the world. Man, when the party's over and the money runs out, you got a venereal disease, you got no money in your account, and your friends who liked you last week, they hate you now because you ain't got no yacht. Now, that's an oversimplification, but you, hit, you get what I'm saying. So here's what Wesley says, John Wesley. The great creator made nothing to be miserable. He made every creature to be happy in its kind. And if you are now unhappy, it's because you are in an unnatural state. And should you not sigh for deliverance from it? I blame you only or pity you rather for taking the wrong way to a right end. This is what I believe you guys were saying temptation is, taking the wrong way to a right end. You're seeking happiness, which you should. You're going after it the wrong way. It's not there. That's the wrong way. I blame you, rather pity you for taking a wrong way to a right end, for seeking happiness where it never was and where it never can be found. You seek happiness in your fellow creatures instead of your creator, but these can no more make you happy than they can make you immortal. These can no more make you happy than they can make you... If my wife would just respond the way I wanted to respond, then I could be happy. I think our culture raises romance to a level romance cannot endure. 
to the, it's, it's the ultimate status. We take our sexuality and raise it to the ultimate identity status, and we take romance and we raise it to the ultimate happiness giver. And it's like, dude, my mom said this years ago, she said, if you have two empty people who are trying to get filled through each other, then you have two people who are basically just sucking each other dry in a marriage. If you have two people who are getting their needs met for love in God, then you've got two people who can overflow on each other, and you've got a, you've got a strong basis for a healthy marriage. Yeah, but you can't fix your happiness for another person anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And if it breaks down and your foundation is them, you're utterly shattered. But if that breaks down, it'll still hurt. It'll still hurt like crazy. Your life can come apart at the seams and you might cry a lot of tears. But what it will fall down on, what will, be, what will still be standing as, after it falls down, is the foundation that holds. You know, like, there, like I never forgot this story. There's a preacher whose wife died, and then very next weekend he preached, his, he preached at his church. And his only message was, guys, I've been all the way to the bottom this week. And it's rock solid. (sighs) Wesley says this, In this alone can you find the happiness you seek, in the union of your spirit with the Father of spirits. In the knowledge and love of him who is the fountain of happiness, sufficient for all the souls he has made. Sure. In this alone can you find the happiness you seek. In the union of your spirit with the Father of spirits, in the knowledge and love of him who is the fountain of happiness, sufficient for all the souls he has made. Sinners did not flock to the scribes and to the Pharisees, did they? And yet the scribes and Pharisees wanted them to, right? They wanted to make disciples. Jesus said they go over land and sea in their efforts to make a single convert. They definitely wanted people. But the people were like, and then here comes Jesus and sinners. The people I described earlier as not having a spiritual bone in their body, the lost causes and the hopeless cases, you know, people like us, (laughs) right? But doesn't that really come from Jesus came with love, you know, to to bring them out. Where the scribes yeah. and, and Pharisees was law. You have to yeah. do this because this is all the rules. Nailed it. And it never works. It's like you read my paragraph. <laughs> yeah. Because who wants to be around somebody who says, I'm fixed, you're broken, I am well, I pity you. And then they use guilt and manipulate Bible, Bible, twisted Bible verses so that the letter of the law, but not the spirit in which it was given, the letter of the law is twisted to manipulate and control you because I don't trust you because I know you're a rotten, dirty sinner, so I need to give you a list of all these Bible rules so I can control and change you through external shame-based manipulation. And it's like, ah, bro, I need help. I feel worse when I'm around y'all, and I want help. I want to change. And it seems like 
I already don't like me, but it seems like y'all don't like me either. You're sure I'm just sin waiting to happen, and the evidence of your multiple footnotes of rules proves you don't trust me. I had a guy come to me early on as, when in my time here, and he said, Tim, you've got to preach against these young women wearing skirts that aren't, short, that aren't long enough, and there's too much cleavage, and these women are dressing in a way that's causing me to lust. In a gospel church, you know what I assume? I assume you have the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And I trust that your desire is to please the Lord and walk in love towards your friends, towards your co- fellow members. That's right. And if I start to need to make rule on rule on rule that is not even in my Bible, then it shows me I don't have faith in your new nature, in your relationship with Jesus. And that you ain't been listening. But sinners didn't flock around the scribes and the Pharisees, and they flocked around Jesus because, like Tina said, He actually loved them. He didn't see them as a problem to fix. You're not a problem to fix. You are a child of God who's here to be loved. And it's my job to see what he sees until you can start to believe what he says is true. Not just says it's true, what is true that we tend not to know. And and all of a sudden, for the first time, they're coming alive. They're getting something at the root level. Because remember, Jesus isn't concerned about trying to fix the surface of the thing. He wants to make the tree good. You can't pin plastic pears on a tree and pretend it's it's a pear tree. It's not. But that's the Pharisee and scribe approach to church. Holiness is rule keeping. And what did we say at the beginning holiness is about? Enjoying God. That ain't the same, is it? That means it's heart first. It's heart first. It's encounter first. It's relationship first. It's me and you. It's receive you. It's know you, walk with you, experience you, take pleasure in you, feel, hear, sense, believe, walk with you. Not do a bunch of rules, people tell me, so that maybe one day, even though I feel, see, have got no experience of God at all, Maybe one day he'll let me into his heaven, whatever that means. So this drives the scribes and Pharisees crazy. What drives the scribes and Pharisees crazy? Well, Jesus was constantly breaking their rules. They thought he was breaking the Bible's rules, but they weren't the Bible's rules. It was their rules that they thought was Bible. Then, then the people they were trying to reach that didn't want to be around them, they all went after him. That's upsetting. And then here's the real kicker. He would pray, and stuff actually happened. Well, that's really frustrating. We prayed, she stayed demonized. We prayed, she stayed slumped over. We prayed, we decided, since we prayed, since we laid hands on, since we anointed with oil, and since she's been in church, Luke 13, for all these years, it must be God's will to teach her something and form godly character in her. And Jesus walked into church, and five minutes later, she walked out whole. That'll tick you off, dude. Because he, if he's right, I'm wrong. That means everything I built my life on is threatened by him. The price tag's too high. He has demons. Annoyingly, probably most annoyingly of all, Jesus was having fun. That's probably worse than all the other stuff. That's worse than the Sabbath breaking and the eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Oh, my God. He was so confrontational. That's so true. I was like, 
<laughs> I was reading through one night. He wasn't even wow. nice to them. <laughs> I was like, come on. <laughs> and they were yep. like real bad. Yes, they were. Flipped the table over like, huh? Oh, dude, he called them names. Yeah. My mom told me not to call people names. He called them names. <laughs> yeah, he called them real names. <laughs> Sons of snakes. And worse. So Jesus seemed to even be having fun. Which makes sense then why like sinners want to be around him. He loves me. I feel alive when I'm around him. When he talks, what he's saying actually has to do with the stuff I'm going through. He talks about the normal stuff like lust, anger, unforgiveness, greed, showing off instead of actually knowing God. He talks about the stuff we're facing. I suspect that many of us, there we go, still have some scribe and Pharisee mindsets that we need to shed to get more in touch with this kingdom of God vision that Jesus saw so crystal clear. And that's what enabled him to live the way he lived. Well, you say, yeah, but he was God. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. But we're actually called to have the mind of Christ. He believed certain things. He thought a certain way. The fact that we're called to have the mind of Christ means we can think what he thought. We can look around our life and look at people and we can actually think what he thought. How do we get there? Living in the presently available love of the Father is how. We're living in the presently available love of the Father. I'm saturated with the availability of the kingdom all the time. That's his gospel. The kingdom has come. It's available here and now. What is the love of the Father? Come home to the love of the Father. Turn away from all that other stuff you've been seeking to find your happiness and come to the love of the Father for your happiness. This is Jesus' simple gospel. The kingdom's at hand. Not someday in the future. Now, there will be better in the future. The fullness, will, the consummation of the kingdom. It'll cover the whole earth as the waters cover this. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. Heaven and earth. Everyone will know, whether they want to or not, who Jesus really is. But we have the privilege of entering fully into the kingdom, not partially, fully into the kingdom and being saturated in the presently available love and reign of the Father now. And Jesus, big brother, is here to train us. But what does it look like with all the different little issues that we face in daily life? So the journey of holiness is not a journey of rules. It's a journey of taking on the mind of Christ and living in the presently available reality of the Father's love. So we exist to glorify God by enjoying Him. Those aren't separate goals. In fact, if you just make it your goal to enjoy God, you'll find that your life glorifies God. C.S. Lewis says, It would seem that our Lord doesn't find our desire for happiness too strong, and that's a problem. Oh, no. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered to us. Like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life in your presence where? In your, and where's that? It's available right here and right now. It's to be realized. 
It's to be, the presence of God is not something to be gained through effort. It's to be realized by faith. We remember, oh, he's here. You're here. Praise you, God. In the middle of class, one of my classmates in seminary, was, we were talking about Jesus, and he said, the Lord Jesus, hello, Lord, said that, <laughs> and it was life-changing. I do that at work. It was life-changing. Just his acknowledgement that we're not dealing with this whole talk. We haven't been dealing with an absent God. God's been in the room. His presence is thick in the room. You'll show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore.